All right, I'm very, very excited about today's episode. With me, we have Mr. Michael Bowman, who's currently the culture guru at Turner Mining Group. You've probably seen him on social media all over the place with his videos, his inspirational messages, and his behind the scenes at his current gig at Turner Mining Group. And he has a whole lot of life experiences to dive into as well. So I am very, very excited to have you on the podcast here, Michael, and have this his conversation with you recorded. Well, I tell you, it's an honor to be here, and I, I love watching you grow and watching what you're doing. I'll never forget talking to you on social media before I ever got to, I don't know if you before I ever got to Turner, I was seeing things that you were doing, I was commenting here and there, and, and then end up, circle of life, meeting Super Tino, and literally shooting a Turner commercial, and it was just crazy. I'm like, I can't believe I'm sitting here with this guy, man, I've been following this dude. So yeah, I'm excited to be here and I just appreciate you as a friend. So I think this has been a cool journey between you and I. We talked online a bunch and then we did that, yeah, that commercial for Turner. I mean, it, it was a, a while back now, maybe a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. And you were extraordinarily well-spoken. You see you, and, and this was before I really knew who you were, and you just don't <laughs> expect how eloquent you are at face value. And then you start talking. I was like, holy smokes, this guy can speak and articulate thoughts. And he's just, his energy's infectious. And now I'm ready to go run through a wall. So <laughs> that, that was my first Michael Bowman experience in California at this, this big mine. You were just going on and on about culture and all kinds of things. Yeah, I've just been super passionate about it. And my background is actually working for non-for-profits and counseling people and trying to inspire people to be their best selves. And so I uh, came into the mining industry just in a kind of a crazy way. And so when you, I remember, you're like, hey, don't look at the camera, but I've done that before. And I've done a little, very humbly, I've done some acting and I've always enjoyed the arts and stuff. And so when I first did my thing, I remember you and Zach were standing there looking at me like, okay, wow. Okay, well, um, keep doing that. Keep yeah, doing that. yeah. Well, that's all we need. We just need that one interview. Yeah, so you haven't always been in mining, and I think your past is really interesting, and it, there's a lot of lessons to be learned with your past. Where were you before mining? Really, you know, I know it's like, I was born, and you know, I don't want to do that to you, but uh, it kind of goes even further than that. When I when I was younger, I didn't live like my best self, and, and I was very much a young man on a rudderless ship, and so I got in a lot of really close shaves and a little bit of trouble and ended up just feeling a lot of guilt over that life lived and decided that I needed to spend the rest of my life working for non-for-profits. Met my best friend, my wife, Anita, and we got married and we moved to Florida and I went to Bible college. Huh. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't finish. I started working for a non-for-profit at that time. And then I just kept going. Ended up uh, in ministry at a church that ministered predominantly to a lot of one percenter motorcycle gangs and and people who just were really struggling and didn't feel like they fit in anywhere else. And they just felt like, hey, you know, I'm too blue color for this place or I'm too wild for this place. And I don't really fit in with the suit and tie. And so this this was just kind of like that beacon for people like that. And I deal well with that because that's where I come from, you know. My father was blue collar all of his life and worked himself half to death. And, and so that's how I grew up. And so I fit in real well there and was there for seven years, counseling kids and families and married, uh, married couples and helping children reunite with their families after being taken by the state. 
and then uh, ended up in the mining industry. <laughs> how, how do you go from punk kid, you know, screw up to Bible college? I mean, what was there a moment where you were like, you know, hey, this oh, yeah. this needs to change, or what? How do you even? That's a one eighty. How, how'd you get there? It was a rough weekend, and uh, that got me there. What What happened was actually just probably two weeks before I met my wife. I had gotten into a situation where I had made some people very angry and uh, guns were presented and bad things happened. I ended up, and, and I'm not proud of this, and I, and I want to make sure people understand that too, because a lot of people talk about their past and they talk about in a boisterous way. You know, you old guys get together and they talk about how they used to fight and they were tough and all that. And I, and I just, I've never, that's never appealed to me. Yeah. So I just want everybody to know that, you know, I'm not being braggadocious or proud of this. I'm kind of ashamed of it, but I am proud that I got out of it. But I was at the time decided that I was going to start dabbling in selling drugs. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it's just like, I can't even believe that was me. You know, I look back, but it was, and I ended up selling, uh, what we call a dime bag to a very, to a person who was owned by a gang. Jeez. And yeah, and so that gang decided to show up on motorcycles and decided to kill me and a bunch of my friends. And that moment was about two hours of us talking through it and getting through it and me making promises to God and whoever else would listen <laughs> that, you know, get me out of this. It was a very hopeless situation. And I just had to analyze where my life was going. One of the things that we did to sell predominantly marijuana and, and uh, we had about six compressed bales at the time that we were dealing out and we would we had a band my friend and I and we would play and have parties and then we would we'd sell dope that way and I was a lead singer and we traveled some in, in, the, in the band and we played most rock alternative and we would play a lot of SPP stuff because that's where my voice goes or Pearl Jam and, and then we wrote originals and so we got a little notoriety for that we had a party one night in Three guys we never met before came in, and when they did, one of them just didn't look right to me. And I've always been the guy in the group that's just sniffing out trouble. And I and I realized something was wrong with the guy. And and what we didn't know is he had been partying a little too hard before he got there, and he was dying. Hmm. And he was overdosing right in front of us, and it was awful. It was an awful thing to watch and to go through. And I just between those two things happening just within a couple of days. I knew something had to change. So then a, a good friend of mine who lived that life with me was murdered. Mm. And between those things, it was just, I felt responsibility for my friend Jake. I felt responsibility for this guy dying on our living room floor. I felt responsibility for the families and the little children that were there the day the gang showed up and mm. having to witness that. And I felt responsible for those things. And I remember loving those little kids and them looking at me. And I was always the guy who's playing with the kids. I love children. I always have. And I just felt like my life has totally, absolutely gone the wrong way. And I had to make a change. So I distanced myself from those people and just told them, like, look, I, I've, I've got to do something else. And I didn't know what that was. And at my best friend's wedding, I roll in there late. And the young lady that they were having me walk up the aisle with, they'd been trying to hook us up on a blind date for a year and a half, and I would not do it. I scooped her arm up. I walked down the aisle with her, and we've been walking arm in arm ever since. No and, um, yeah, 
she, I was, uh, I was smitten pretty much right away. And I was a guy who could very easily ask girls out. I didn't have problems with girls at that time. And I had the hardest time asking her out. And I'll never forget what she said. The bride's name was Stephanie. My wife's name is Anita. And she said, I looked at her and said, Hey, um, you know, I was wondering like next Friday, you'd like to just, you don't know, hang out. And she said, I told Stephanie, the bride, if you had the balls to ask me out, I'd say yes. And I was in love right then. I was like, this is a tough girl. <laughs> this is somebody who has got huevos and style, and I dig this girl. And then when I ended up seeing her home and how organized it was and, and seeing how classy she was, I really felt like this girl's never going to be into me. Yeah. Because I knew what had happened two weeks prior. I'd almost lost my life. I almost, I, I made choices and decisions that almost had kids traumatized because these bikers were coming in telling us all what they were going to do to children. And it wasn't nice and, and I won't repeat it. Yeah. And, and now I'm, I'm, I'm going on a date with this girl who's got a job, a real job, and she's got her life together and she's moving forward and it intimidated the hell out of me. And I didn't think I'd get a second date. How, but how, for some reason, she, she, she wanted to see me again. How, how old were you? I think I was 22. I think that's, I was 22 when, at this time. Holy smokes. And so she, why, I mean, if she's doing <laughs> fine and you're the screw oh, up. she's doing great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> why, why choose you and then move to, you guys moved to Florida? Where were you at right when you met? No, this, it gets worse. She moved in with me in a trailer, no, no fancy man trailer, but a trailer that you could feel the wind blowing through the thing from one side to the other in the middle of hillbilly hell in Gosport, Indiana, in the middle of nowhere. And she'd been a city girl her whole life. She had never ridden horses. She had, I mean, I could do the whole list of things that she had never done, but there was a whole list of things I had never done either. And I was just this hill jack who was used to going out with a, a blanket and going, that was camping. You know, you had a fire and some food and a blanket, and I thought that was camping. You know, <laughs> she yeah. showed me how to camp, by golly. <laughs> and so um, I was like, you know, we're going to have a tent? <laughs> Holy so, smokes. Yeah, I was a wild animal. And I think one of the things, too, is when, when she moved to the Bloomington area where we live now, at that time, my past was glaring at her everywhere we went because at that time there wasn't a restaurant in town I couldn't eat for free at. Yeah. And I just had this syndicate of people who knew me. And when I showed up, I was Mike Bowman with the hookup. Mm. I was the guy with the hookup at that time. And, and, and I wasn't some massive, you know, just like Miami drug deal. You know what I mean? I'm, I was a hillbilly and a guy who loved and adored fighting. I was in martial arts for nine years I studied uh, uh, a martial art called Gimel Kai and Torin Khan and was very efficient at hurting people, and I enjoyed it. And she just really felt like we needed to move to get a fresh start. Hmm. And we did. Wing and a prayer to discover card, we moved to Florida. <laughs> I mean, had you really been out of Indiana up until that when point? I was, well, no, when I was very little, we had lived in rochester new york but i don't i have very vague memories of this so yeah most of my life was spent. i mean by the time i was nine years old at a 22 and i would go by myself four miles through the, the woods and cornfields the white river and hang out by myself and so you know i was pretty much just this <laughs> wild hillbilly and she refined me jeez so you you moved to florida what's the process of i mean completely 
undoing everything you knew up until that point and going into ministry? I mean, is that scary or what, what was that like? Or did you, were you like, uh, Holy smokes, what have I done? What was that like? There was a lot of Holy smokes. Where have I done? Because, and I still drop the F bomb all the time, but I was, it was part of my every sentence vernacular at that moment. I was very uncouth. Yeah. I was still throwing people up against walls. I mean, that's how I, that's how I would solve problems. And so here I'm, no kidding, Aaron. I'm going to Bible college and I'm looking at guys going, I'll fucking kill you <laughs> and meaning it. And these kids, they came from the Midwest or they came from church camp and they were just all talking like this. But if they act like a punk, I'd call them out. Yeah. And no one knew how to handle that. So I had very few friends and I had one friend, Tony Grapple. I've lost contact with the guy, but he did, was not intimidated by me in the slightest. And he was just a good dude who was just willing to be my pal, you know, willing to be there for me. And I just needed that. And it was guys like him who were, you know, just real gently were like, Mike, you know what? You don't have to be the toughest guy in the room, which that's how I was raised. Yeah. You know, and you, you don't have to be so forceful all the time. You know, there's was times where, and I just, I, I would, that was always my default was always violence, you know, uh, riding my motorcycle, you almost got hit one time. And here I'm going to Bible college. We're going down the highway and my middle finger is pressed up against a window of some poor guy who almost killed us. And my wife's hitting me in the back of the head going, God, would you stop? And here I wake up and snap out of it. And it was always someone's on the floor or I am like smacking someone's door, you know, and, and it took a long time because I felt so short of everything that I was doing. So I, I met guys, another guy named Marcus Stern, who I met in college. I still keep in contact kind of with him and my wife knows his wife, but this guy I just looked up to him because he was so cool and he just seemed to have his life together in his perfect direction. And I just was like, I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. I think just every day, just doing it anyway. Mm. It's how you make the change. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of people listening to these podcasts, you know, whether it's the Turner or the, or, or yours, and, and I'm hoping to start one soon. And they're yeah. looking to say, well, you know, I see the fact that I'm where I'm at. I, it's clear to me, but there's no way I can get to X, Y, and Z. And that's bull. You know, you just have to get up every day and keep swinging every day and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to fail, but you just got to go, okay. Well, that's just a part of it. And that's what life was for us. I mean, we were both very rough around the edges and we didn't fit in anywhere. It was hard. It was really hard, but there were just some people who loved us anyway. That's the type of person I want to strive to be. I want to be that guy who's loved you anyway. I remember we talked a little bit about a long time ago, you know, how you used to be an angry person, this and that. And it really surprised me at the time because now I can't even imagine you being an angry person. I mean, not even... Not even slightly. You're you're so far removed, at least from what I've seen, from how you used to be and from that angry person now. It illustrates that point that you just talked about perfectly. That, you know, hey, you just because you're somewhere doesn't mean you always have to stay there. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And the, the thing was, too, I realized at one point, it was like, you know what? I, I don't really have a lot of real friends. I have a friend of mine who's in the military now. His name is Ty Woolley, and, and I love this man. And I was mean to him. And I remember just being threatening to him at times. And I look back then, it really breaks my heart that I would do that. And it really, because I was just all the time having to prove to myself that I was still tough. But what that did was it just wore me out. And it's exhausting to have to keep up that persona. And it's exhausting to have to always constantly prove it because you're constantly having to smack somebody. You're constantly having to prove that you're tough. And I really, what I realized was I was just very much still a child. And yeah. when I grew up, I grew up in a very harsh 
environment that was not conducive for children to raise up, go up in without going into a great deal of detail. And, and it made me a very angry person, but deep down my heart was just, just passionate for people. Mm. And so I just had to have some people like my wife, Anita, who just were like, Mike, you know what? You've got a great heart, but you've got to change. My wife, one day, uh, we've been married for like almost eight years and she just told me, Mike, I'm, I'm pregnant. And I was like, you know, kids weren't on the radar because I always thought I'd be a terrible dad because mm. of things that I had seen. And I was afraid that I would, you know, abuse my kids because I was abused. Yeah. And, and I was abused by someone who didn't ever see it or, you know, or even see the, the, the torture that I was put through as a kid. Mm. And so I thought I would be the same way. And then I, I immediately went into counseling. As soon as I found out that we were having our oldest, I, I went into counseling. So you and, uh, you you made that decision. You're like, hey, I, I need to change yeah. this. I can't do it on my own. And, and yeah. was that why? Yeah. I mean, you just acknowledge you can't yeah. do it on your own. Yeah, and I still come to those places. You know, I don't know about you, Aaron, but I, I come to the end of myself a lot. Yeah, and I realize I'm like, dude, you know, this is way over my head. You know, uh, this I've got to do more. You know, I just started trying to work out again, and I have some issues as far as uh, several autoimmune issues and physical issues because I was very physical as a young man. So I have a lot of hurt places <laughs> But I'm trying to, you know, this new, new, new journey I'm taking on with uh, Turner. I'm trying to work out and make a better me because I know that I have to be physically so I can fit, so I can be mentally fit. And there's just a lot of challenges coming at me right now and in good ways, all, all great stuff, but I'm at the end of me. And so I have to do more to invest in me. So I decided then I was like, you know what? My wife's not going to stay with me if I stay this way. Mm. My kid is never going to respect and love me. They're always going to fear me. And I don't want my child to be afraid of me. Mm. I want my child to respect me because I respect them. And so, yeah, so I just jumped in there. I, even my counselor, she even told me she's like, she was a therapist. And she's like, look, I've got degrees out the yin-yang. She's like, I've been doing this for over 30 years. She said, I've never met anyone so aggressive to get in the muck and the dirt and the filth of their life and just expose it right in front of me. I, just, I don't even have to pull things out of you. And I'm like, look, lady, I got a kid coming in nine months. I got to be, you got to fix me. Yeah. And I would tell her that. And, and, you know, it wasn't eloquent. I'm like, dude, fix me. There's a problem. What was that fixing process like? I mean, what did you have to do? What did you have to change? How did you have to change your, your, the way you think and, and all of that? So I had to face a lot of things that I didn't know was abuse. Yeah and diagnose those and admit that, you know, I did not have the Midwest upbringing. It yeah. was different. A lot of, and like I said, you know, I, I, uh, I want to be careful how I tread in yeah. that such, just for obvious reasons. And, uh, but things that happened to me were, I know, you know, I was molested as a child. That was one thing. And, and I had to kind of walk through that instead of just go, yeah, this happened. It was, mm. it was bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to go, well, this is what happened. This is when it happened. And this is who it was. This is how it was. And as a small child feeling out of control, you know, you, control is an illusion. Power is an illusion. You know, the only control we have over is ourselves. I've, I've always believed that. But, you know, yeah. so you, you react in such a way. It was like, look, I was raped as a child and now I want to super protect myself. And so I always felt like I had to be aggressive and I had to be mean. and It made me mean. You know, it made me very aggressive. And so I had to, I had to walk through that. And then I had to walk through, okay, well, 
you know, I don't really have a template of what fatherhood looks like or even marriage. Like, how am I supposed to be as a husband? What does this look like? Mm-hmm. You know, and I had to walk through those things one at a time. And it was kind of just like I talk about a lot of times about prioritize and execute. Sometimes you have these glaring issues. And if you're if you're really wanting to grow and you're listening to this podcast, you got to stop pointing your fingers at everyone else. and You got to start working on you. Then the rest of the world starts to figure itself out yeah. and you can handle it a lot better. And so what I had to do was you know, get this list with this counselor and go, OK, this is the glaring one right here. We need to prioritize and execute. And this is first on the list. So let's break this one down. Let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. Let's get it buried and taken care of and let's move on. Not Mm. that that hurt still doesn't exist. I still very much hurt over the things that happened to me as a child. My wife very much hurts over the things that happened to her as a child, but we decide within ourselves to move on from those things, learn from those things and grow from those things instead of just curl up and be bitter about life. I didn't get that pony when I was sweet 16. So now I hate everybody, you know? When you've looked to those demons in the face, so they, they don't have power over you anymore. And I guess it's, yeah, exactly you can't, you right. can't blame yourself for anything that, that happens to you, especially when you're young, but it is at the end of the day, your responsibility to, to jump over right. it and, and to get past it. Or you can just play victim your entire life. I guess those are the two yeah. options. And those are the people who never go anywhere. And I noticed yeah. that, but look around and I would see people. I had a boss one time and he had quite the raucous life, man. he, he had actually gotten the special forces. He was pararescue. He had done all these cool things and he was just mean. And I just remember looking at that going, man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that way. And I don't want to constantly looking at everybody else all the time and saying, this guy's a problem. That guy's a problem instead. And even when I approach things at work, when I say, okay, this is a problem, this person is causing that problem, but what can I do in a positive direction to either fill the gap in that situation or help motivate that person to look at things in a different way. Yeah, And that's where you have to be with life if you're going to be successful. I mean, you have people who are flash in the pan successful, and, and they don't have any well-roundedness in life, and they squander their wealth. They're never happy. You see it all the time, these people who are uber famous and are drug addicts and are alcoholics, because they've never faced those, like you said, it was beautiful. You face those demons right in their face, and you're like, all right, I recognize you, and now I'm coming for you. Every single day. Mm-hmm. And some days you win, some days you lose. You and know, so it's not a perfect battle. You just got to keep swinging. That's a good point right there too. It, it never goes away. It's, it's a nonstop yeah. battle, huh? It's yeah. not like you just get over it and then like, oh, thank God that's over with. Now I can just sit down and rest. It's, it, yeah. it's just nonstop. Yeah. Hmm. No, it is not stop. I, and that's a kind of why I've been moving the way I'm moving. It's just because I can't stop. If I stop, I die Yeah, in many ways. And so I have to keep pushing for more, you know, more, more, more. I don't want to just stay where I'm at. I got to have more. How do you go from counselor to miner? Because everyone knows you as, oh, you're in this mining industry, but you know, I don't right. think a lot of people knew you're, you're a counselor before. How do you make that jump? Because that's not, it doesn't make sense at all. No, it wasn't easy. A friend of mine, well, first of all, we realized that we weren't making any money. We uh, could work for non for profits. Yeah. And, and my kids are growing up, and I'm seeing that they're both extremely talented and gifted children. I'm like, and I'm not saying that because they're my kids. You know, I'm saying that because I'm, I was overwhelmed by how quickly they would, you know, have schoolwork and get straight A's and, and how it was like no big deal to them. I mean, they thought they were struggling, but I would look at it from the outside looking at them like, geez, these kids are brilliant. And then they both have like really 
you meet them and you're like, dang, there's just something really super special about these kids. And, and so they both went in their own direction and they're both artists and they're both beautiful in the way they do things. And so I'm like, I've got to make more cash. And mm. so as I was being offered jobs actually all over the country at that point as a pastor, and I had gotten pretty well known in the Midwest and uh, had been offered a job in Northern Illinois for the fastest growing non-for-profit in the country at that time. And I got burned out, man. The situation where we were at had to change because rapidly. And I had to get out of that job because there were some decisions being made, especially with dealing with children and youth, that was dangerous. Mm. And I felt like leadership had completely lost control and lost foresight of really what the goal was. And the ultimate goal is building people, not building fear and keeping people. Mm. And I realized, I'm like, we're not building human beings here. So my buddy Darren said, man, if you need a job right now, I got one that will pay all good, but you're going to be working 90 hours a week. Mm. And I said, I'll take it. Literally, it, it was so stressful where we were at. When I told my wife I had gotten the job, she collapsed and, and bawled because the, the, where we were at was so stressful and so just awful. And it was uh, it people were wonderful, but the leadership was just, they were out of control. So it was the leadership and in the money stress. Yeah, financial stress. Yeah. And so yeah. I had, I took anything I could take. And what I also realized is though, I knew that if as a driller in the mining industry, if I did what I said I would do, like we would, we would do these um, where the, the drills, would, if they were truck-mounted drills, they would come into the shop and we would do complete oil change, hydraulic fluid change, and just completely go through them, hammer oil, the whole deal. I would volunteer for this. And it would be an all-day rotation of drills coming in. It was the most filthy thing ever. I'd volunteer for it because no one else wanted to do it. Mm. My buddy Darren would also, and I just copied Darren because Darren would say, you know, hey, someone, does, someone doesn't want to work Saturday, I'll work Saturday. So I did the same thing. And I'll never forget sitting you know, on a 108-foot uh, ledge, winds blowing sideways, ice hanging off my beard, and the pull-down chains for these drill tags are 30 feet up in the air, and the uh, the sprocket up top that holds those pull-down chains uh, broke. And when it did, the bolt actually came down and hit me in a hard hat. So, you know, huge. I would have been definitely a trip to the hospital because this thing is, you know, two inches on the head, and there was about two and a half inches of the shank still left on it. And I have a small scar on my orange hard hat that you first met me in. And I, and I won't let go of that hard hat. I still have <laughs> it. And when the mechanic came and at the time I'm just like a driller's helper, but I'm still doing the job. I said, all right, Mark, I'm here to help. What can I do? I want to learn and I want to help you. And he looked at me, he goes, where'd they get you from? And I said, what do you, what do you mean? And he goes, that guy. And he points to the guy I'm working with. He said, he's not getting out of his truck to help me. And he wouldn't. The guy was sitting there reading his newspaper. He wasn't going to jump in there as a team player, no matter what. For him, he was too good to get out of his truck to help him. And I said, look, bro, we're all in this together. I want to learn. And I, it's not fair for me to sit in the truck while you come out here and freeze yourself to death. We're going down together. And after that, there wasn't anything Mark wouldn't do for me. He would go out of his way when I became a driller on my own all the time. And I would feel bad. I'm like, Mark, you don't have to. I mean, it's a four-hour drive home for you. You're not going to get home until midnight. And he'd be like, that's all right. That's what I'm here for. Because I established that friendship with him. And so I became successful. My boss liked me because he knew I was willing to do whatever I was asked, go wherever I was asked to go. And it was integral when I would show up to mine sites and never forget Brian at West Plains was like, dude, I prefer you more than anybody. I so love it when you show up, when it's you. And I realized, you know, early in life too, when you show up, 
and you work hard, you progress. And I had my eyes on other things. So guys, if you're wanting to grow and you're upset about where you're at, well, look at where you're wanting to go and then make plans to get there. So yeah. I didn't just wish the whole time not because I didn't want to work 90 hours a week to be away from my kids. I knew what it was like to come home and see my kids. They'd grown and changed. They're not even the same anymore. And I was missing out on major parts of their lives. And here I'm a dad who wants to be in the mix. My youngest learned how to look, ride a bike without me. Mm. And what? all of a sudden I come home and she's, Papa, look, I can ride a bike. And I was like, oh, God, what? You know? So what was the drive to just do anything and, and work when everyone else didn't want to? Was it just that desperation or that, that I want to get away from this and spend more time with my kids and climb up the ladder? What, what was the motivator? For me, like, honestly, I can't even tell you other than I, it's hard for me to compute that. Yes, there was a motivator of wanting to be home with my wife and kids. Yeah. To the stress of what had previously happened for seven years in the ministry we were in what had deteriorated our marriage. And I knew, I felt in my heart that I was going to lose my wife. Wow. And she was literally my best friend. I think that on my deathbed, that would have been my glaring greatest mistake, is if I lost her, I lost everything. That, okay, so that got me a little choked up to think about it. So yeah. anyway, so the drive is to want to do better and to make me better. I, I don't get up in the morning and look and think, gee, my boss isn't looking at me this way. Mm-hmm. Or I'll never progress because of my race. Or I'll never progress because of my religion. I'll never progress because of my sex. I think about how do I punch yesterday's Mike Bowman in the gut and defeat him? Mm. How do I do better every day? How do I beat my own records? Because I'm not competing against anybody yeah. but me. Yeah. You know, When I wrestled in high school, I never competed but with anybody but me. When I fought in dojos, I never competed against that other person. I competed against me. That's my approach. Okay. And and when I when I pick my head up and start looking at what everyone else is doing and try to compete with other people, that's when I I get kicked pretty hard. Yeah. And I've, I've found yeah yeah it's such a distraction. You're so much better off just trying to compare you to yesterday. Am I a little yeah. bit better than yesterday? And if you say that. You know, if, if you answer that question, yes, enough days in a row, then, then man, you make a lot of progress quick. But if you start comparing yourself to others, it's, it's a painful road to go down. Right. I, I met a bodybuilder one time uh, when I was very young in high school. I think he was Mr. Indianapolis. So as a little kid, you know, from the Midwest, that was a big deal. You know, he's a big muscled up guy. And I don't ever forget what he told me. He's like, you know, I don't look at the other guys. He said, mm-hmm. I look at me. Mm-hmm. And he said, and I get so excited when I realize I've made gains Yeah, when I've moved forward. And it really puzzled me because I thought, well, you got to look at your competition. As a kid, I didn't quite get it. And now as an adult, I realized that he would obsess over his physique in front of that mirror. He wasn't looking at how the other guys looked. He was concerned with being the best him that he could be. And that's all I'm concerned with every day. Now, are there days that I flesh it out and I'm just jackass? Absolutely. Are those days that I have to eat crow and go, I'm sorry, I was wrong? Oh my God, they're more often than I would like them to be. But if yeah. I get obsessed and bogged down with those, then what happens is I get that loser mentality. And loser mentality is, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm never getting ahead. Geez, the world's against me. Look, no, the world's not against you. You are against you. Your own mentality's against you. And if you keep your head down there, you're always going to stay down there. And you're always going to be blaming everybody for problems that you're creating. And so for me, it's like, no, how do I own today? How do I beat yesterday? 
And so I'm not, even like in my marriage, I don't get sit there and go, well, I needed this, needed that. I'm like, no, how can I serve better in that situation? Yeah. Now, Where am I falling short? Why does this make me mad? With your marriage, how do you go from, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm probably going to lose this to, you know, you're still very happily married as far as, as, as what I've seen. What did you have to do to, to repair that? I mean, what, what were the steps? What were the things you had to change about yourself to get to a point where, you know, where you wanted to be with your marriage? For our, our marriage, for me, it was, there's a 50, 50 split in so many things. And for, to, it was, I'm going to be honest, it was just watching her mm. and how she would handle me with grace because mm. I would freak out about stuff. It's totally emotional when I left ministry because it was all I ever wanted. And I was very successful at it. And I was very, just people knew me, you know, I've been on stage in front of 5,000 people and, and it was intoxicating. But when I realized later it was mostly ego driven. Yeah. And so it was all about me. And then what she helped me to kind of walk through so patiently when she had opportunities to leave me and walk away, she just didn't. And I can't really say why. And she's just always been my hero. And so just to sit there and watch her go, you know what? I'm going to have grace for you in that moment, even though you're being an asshole. <laughs> and, and then I would know I was being an asshole. And then I had to come back and go, you know what? I know I'm being an asshole. And I'm sorry. And, and in so many things, you know, I remember one, it, and it goes back to when we dated. I just looking at her and having her life so, so together, seeming so together and so strong. I was like, I don't deserve this person, but by God, I'm going to follow this person. And she's going to follow me and see where it goes. Cause I, I don't think I can live without her. And, it's just been an awesome journey. So yeah, things were rough and, but it, it was also rough because of external circumstances. Yeah. And so in that situation, it was so stressful, but we were just depressed. We mm. were so beat down, but it, I didn't beat her down. She didn't beat me down. We were just beat down. Mm-hmm. We were just destroyed and everything in that moment seemed bad. And I encourage anybody just to have that honest conversation. I'll never forget. We're sitting at the edge of the garden we were trying to plant a garden. I just remember looking at her, I'm not happy. And she's like, what are you saying? And I was like, I'm not happy. And she did. I remember having this conversation of what are we going to do? And we took it literally one moment at a time, not one day at a time. It was one moment at a time. And we had to just kind of try to heal each other. And it was rough, man. The first couple of years, the hurt. And there was a lot of times that she would have a bad day. It just about what had happened before and just that residual hurt. And I'd have to just sit there and be patient yeah. because she had been patient with me for years over things. Mm. So I had to recognize the fact that, yeah, she might be going through a hard time, but how many times has she been there for me? So I need to shut up and listen and take whatever's going on and move forward together. And I think it's really tightened our bonds. And, and, and if she would do, of course, the same for me, there just has to be, you have to love the other person more than you love yourself. And mm. why are you in it? You know, too many people get married because they want to have somebody. Yeah. They want to own that person. They don't want to share life and pull equally out of yoke with somebody. They want to own that person. And so then when all the hot stuff is gone, they don't have a relationship. And now they start tearing each other down. That's the time when you need to build each other up. And what we just decided to do was we want to build each other and be there no matter how ugly it looks, no matter how ugly it looks we're still going to be there for one another. And it's the quintessential greatest thing that's ever happened in my life is my, my relationship with my wife. Now, I guess there's, there's a few things here. One, you said it took years. So this was not mm-hmm. an overnight, no. overnight process. No. <laughs> and no, and two, I'll never forget. And I'm, I'm not married. My parents are divorced. So I don't, 
I, I really don't have a lot of, uh, you know, role models as far as what a marriage looks like. And, and I don't, I can't speak from personal experience here, but I was in, let's see, Zion national park a few years ago. And, and we were talking to a guy and he was explaining his marriage and what, what he, he explained it as is, you know, everyone, they get married, they have kids and then everything is about their kids, everything, everything, everything. And then the kids leave right. and then they look at the person they're married to and they don't even know who that person is anymore because they've, they haven't right. maintained a relationship. And now you're here saying, it's you know, my relationship is, is everything to me. It's the most important thing that's happened. And it's why I'm able to do everything else I'm doing. So do you, as far as relationships go, and I think a lot of people put, you know, their kids, number one, is, is it your relationship with your wife? That's number one. And that's the foundation of the household. And then, and then your kids and then everything else from there. It's all quintessentially goes back to that. You got to love people more than yourself. Yeah. And it goes back to balance. Uh. So yes, you know, I think that a lot of people, they, I, and we've heard that my wife just talked about a friend of her saying, Hey, I don't even know my husband, you know, yeah. we're raising these kids. I don't even know. And for us, we started off as best friends. Huh. And so it's more than just being lovers. It's about being, I'm telling you, if I want to go get a beer with somebody, it's going to be my wife. Mm. She's my go-to. I laugh harder with her. And I, and, and we have, it's not that we even have so much in common. It's just that we were so passionate about hearing and excited about watching that other person grow. And we've been very insatiable about that. And that's been one of the quintessential things. And, and then also for me as a man to realize, I am passionate about my children. Yeah. My children literally came from her body. Mm-hmm. So that beautiful, every time I look at my children, I can't not see her. Every time that I look at them and see things that they're doing, I recognize her handprint, her heart in that. And every time I see something beautiful, I'm like, oh, my wife, she just crafted that. And I see something so wonderful. And so even if I've got to spend more time with the kids than her or vice versa, we're both seeing those things. And it's almost as if we're together. Because we recognize one another and our kids. And so you have to understand no matter how many soccer games you have to go to or how many ballet things you have to go to, you're in this together. And the most important thing is what brought you together in the first place. And I don't care what stage you're in. If it's the end of your life, all of a sudden you guys are strangers. Get to know each other because you got together for a reason. Yeah. Huh. And those people still exist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is, I, 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 I'm glad we went down this tangent. All right, so let's bring it back to mining here. That's you know, that's I can't even segue it because I, I can't really tie these two yeah. things together. Uh, uh, so so you're you're a driller. You're a dr- like a marriage. Yeah yeah. <laughs> um, so so you're a you're a driller, and so yeah. you're poking holes in rock to help blow things up and make big yeah. rocks into small rocks. So you did that for quite a while, and then at what point do you run into? Keaton Turner and transition to Turner Mining Group? So I'm working for a great guy, Matt Boatman, who I still love. I I don't think I've ever worked for any one person that's ever made me laugh so hard. And he's just, he's just a character that I'll never forget. And then his second in command, Gus Deer, who we got a rocky start and but after a while we just had this very mutual respect and love for one another. And I saw them at Agwan and just had hugs for both of them. I just love those guys, but I had actually gotten in a rhythm with them, but I felt like there was not a next level. And this is at the time, and I have to, and I planned on doing this to you. I started watching a guy named Aaron Witt around this time. Oh, geez. 
AF, that character. And I was watching this guy, and I was inspired by the stuff that you were doing. I'm like, why can't we do this? And I, they didn't they didn't really hold a lot of value in that stuff. And I just decided, you know what, I need to start posting. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I had maybe only had a couple hundred people looking at my stuff. And I said, i got to hit this harder. And then I started getting that 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, 600,000 range, which, you know, sometimes I'll do a post and I get two views. You know what I mean? Or sometimes I get none. But I started pinging off all on these a little bit more and just talking about work integrity. And Keaton hit me up one day. No and kidding. he commented. And I'm like, who is this guy who commented? And I really dug what he said. And I can't even remember what it was. So I looked him up on LinkedIn. And I was just fell in love with some of the stuff he said. And I was just like, okay. Where's this guy from? Well, he's from my hometown. And I'm like, why don't I know who this guy is? And so we started talking back and forth. Well, he started checking out the rest of my stuff. And then he stalked me on Facebook. And then he got to talking to people who knew me. And then next thing you know, he starts coming on real strong. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, who, what? And we talked for probably over six months back and forth and just sharing our hearts. That's all it was. It really wasn't even so much about business as it was just our passion for people. And he's like, Mike, you've got to work here. He says, and I don't know if he told me, he said, Mike, I don't care if, I don't care what we title we've got to throw at you. I just want you in the door. And I told my wife, I'm like, this guy's nuts. I don't even know who this guy is. And he kept asking me to meet him for coffee. And I refused. I was like, no, 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 no. I got a good thing going. I can just coast here. I've got this nailed down. Our citations are low. Our guys injuries are low. Our performance is really good, and I'm getting well-known and had an opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. to talk to our senators and things like that, and then talk to the, the brass at Emshaw, and, and this was about to happen. It never did happen because I ended up leaving. But finally, he's like, just meet me for a, a coffee at Starbucks on the west side of Bloomington. And I was like, yeah, all right. So I show up, and here's this guy. He's taller than me. He's wearing Ray-Bans and skinny jeans. And I was like, Steel toe boots, you know, boot cut Levi's. (laughs) I'm happy with wearing a leather jacket or a Carhartt, you know, and I'm like, who is this knucklehead? And he's dressed to the nines, you know, but he started sharing his heart. And I realized that Keaton Turner was not full of crap. And I realized this guy had an extremely genuine heart. And then my kids, before I left that day, wrote a list of demands. And I was like, look, I promised that I would read this list of demands. I don't have it with me anymore. I so wish I'd have kept it. But one of those things on the list of demands to Keaton was, had he ever been called Keaton Turner, like on Pirates of the Caribbean? And I had asked him this. My kids made me. And then they asked me, do I have to shave my beard to work? Because that's a Mm no-go. And Keaton answered everyone so humbly and he was laughing the whole time and he got where I was coming from. I'm sitting there testing this guy and one of the things that I'm gifted at is sitting with people and learn their tells from counseling. Um, I don't do it to everybody because I don't always know but some people are glaring and he is and he just loved every minute of it. He goes, dude, you can grow your beard down your knees if you want to and I just was like, dude, I can't believe I'm going to do this right here right now and I scared him. I said, I'll do it. And here I'm leaving a job where they provided me with a brand new truck. Yeah. Here I, and I could do whatever I wanted with that truck. And here's two people, Gus and, and, and Matt, who are treating me with respect and honor. And, and you know what I mean? They knew I was coming to do the job and they were willing to go the extra mile for me. 
And it was the first time in a long time that it happened, but I felt like I should gamble. And I'm on this side of it, real glad I did. What do you do now? What's your role morphing into? Because I think it is pretty fascinating. It's And it's way different than, than drilling, obviously. What what are you working on yeah. now with, with Turner Mining? So my background has always been kind of that driller side, that blue collar, hey, how do we approach things from the far away? And then safety, and then how do we approach safety in very simplistic ways? Yep. When I came on to Turner, I first came on as GM. And what I would do was build processes and then hand them off. So I've had my hand in HR, but I mean, we have people that are doing these things now on a massively wonderful scale. I was doing a lot poorly. Mm. I wasn't doing any one thing good, but I simultaneously with safety, HR, fleet management, both on small fleet and, and large fleet. And then I even did a little bit of accounting in that. I was kind of watching over credit card statements and, and different stuff like that. We would build new people come in. Sophie came in and when Sophie came in, she just took over so much and it's just an absolute killer. And then, you know, I mean, one after another, I could just keep naming people. And, and I can honestly say our staff from one end to another, I, I love, genuinely love every one of these people. And so they would take it and just rock it. And then I stayed in the safety realm for a long time because we were a little rocky for a while, but we have a new guy who's just absolutely killing it. I'm so proud of him. And so the new position that I have now, and, and it's still kind of the same I did before, is my hands in a little bit of everything. And that uh, my new title, if you will, is culture guru. And what that means, because I think a lot of companies lose culture, their understanding of it, and they do these knee-jerk reactions of trying this new program and that new program. And if anybody's a salesman listening right now, though I'm not interested, and they want to spend money, and they spend a lot of money and time, which time is money, on trying to fix culture. And what I do instead is I look at it more internally and how we are treating our staff how we are treating, just simply, I'll use SOPs as an example. How are we rolling out those SOPs? And in that rollout, how did that affect our PMs? Mm. And then how did that actually come out to our people? And so I'm analyzing those things and I'm analyzing the data of what's daily life like for our people and how can we practice in a practical way, enhance that so they can live a better themselves too. And then how do we grow our people? And then how do we move forward into a team and how does culture integrate into every facet of our organization? So that's what I do. Well, and to play devil's advocate here, this is all, this is all very foreign in mining. So, you know, I'm a mining executive and I'm sitting here, I'm like, well, why the hell would I spend any kind of money in culture or people or why does any of that matter in mining? I'm just moving rocks. What's the value? I was the same. Yeah. why, Why invest in that? I was in the same place and what I learned when I learned this in ministry and then would take this everywhere I went, the better you treat people. And I'm not talking beer and steak dinner every night. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about your daily interactions of how you're actually moving your organization forward. The better that you think about those things are intentional about those things and move forward in those things, your watch production go up. Yeah, your safety record goes up. Yeah, your morale goes up, and people will start doing things on their own to make your site have a better culture. I once went to a site, had to spend two weeks there because we were just not doing well. We were dying. Our people were hating life, and after two weeks, smiles, production, safety—the numbers were all there to support every bit of it. And you know what I did, Aaron? I showed up. I made small tweaks and then I just loved on people for two weeks. Mm. I show them respect. 
I engaged with them. I talked to them about their families. I legitimately and genuinely cared. And that whole time when I was showing that care, which can be exhausting, but at the same time, I'm showing that care and showing honor to people that are technically within the organization way lower on the food chain than I am. But I've never had that mentality. I don't feel if you're cleaning the toilet and mopping the floors, we're on the same level. Because without you doing that, I have to stop and do it. So you're precious to me. And like in our organization at Turner Mining, if you're driving a Holocaust, please don't think right now that you're lowly. You're not. You are integral and super important to our organization because without you, we don't have an organization. So that's what I bring. And just by doing that after two weeks, the data was unbelievable and undeniable. That's a good point. I mean, the haul truck drivers are the ones that make the company money because you right. you make money on moving material and they're the ones actually moving the material. You don't you don't make the company a dime. And no. and no one in the office does. It's it's really fascinating how all that works just from a dollar's perspective. So they really are, I mean, one of the, you know, the most essential cog in the in the machine. But yeah. As far as as treating people well, I, I think you said something interesting too. It's not about the steak dinners and all that. These grandiose gestures, they're nice. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of these construction mining companies, they point to like, oh yeah, we have this annual, you know, dinner for everyone and their wives once a year and, and that's culture. But it's not. I think they think yeah. that that's, it's really just those little daily details that I think is culture. Right. And that, that's what builds it. It's It's not those grandiose gestures a lot of times. And, and are they nice? Yeah. But I don't think they really build culture. I don't either. Yeah. You know, I was in wrestling in high school and I was also in martial arts in high school and I was doing this simultaneously. A lot of people I went to school with had no idea that by the time I was a senior in high school, I could kick a nine foot ceiling. <laughs> I, no one knew. And what I learned was in the martial arts, we used to have a saying when, before we would fight someone, he ain't nobody. He ain't nobody. And there was a different mentality. But when my coach, Coach Anderson, would teach me, and he would talk about wrestling. It was more of what you were doing. It wasn't about that guy's nobody or that guy's your opponent. He's a loser. Anderson, Coach, was very hard on us, but equally hard on us. And every day he came with a consistently, you had to be on time, you had to be respectful. In other words, like in an organization, we compute that you've got to show up to work. You've got to show me that you're going to work hard but I'm going to be equally as hard on everybody here and we're all going to push forward. And if Mm. I could right now choose to go back to either one, though I loved martial arts, I would go back to wrestling because I learned more about leadership in wrestling than I did in martial arts. I learned more about loving people and yet still putting up boundaries and still giving them the opportunities to win than I did in martial arts. I learned martial art when I go in not to be intimidated. That guy ain't nobody. He's nobody. No, that was not the right mentality to going into a fight. As far as leadership goes, what are the common mistakes? And that might be one of them. What are, what are the common mistakes you see younger people make when they first step into leadership roles? I'm the leader. It's my way or the highway. Mm. They see things as a hierarchical view. In other words, a lot of young people, especially young people, want to get into a leadership position because one, they think they have to do less. Mm. Two, they feel like they'll have authority over people. Yeah. And they're now the boss. But this is not just the generational thing. This is just a people thing. I really hate all this Gen Z's and how to, no, it's how to talk to people, period. People are the same. Now, the way you might communicate and say something is a little bit different, but we're all the same. And so a lot of times young people will come into a leadership position. It's like my way or the highway. And we've been fortunate, like we've got a young man out in Reading right now who's not that way. He's a PM. 
he's out there smashing it. He's from Texas. And you think a Texas boy would be out there, you know, hey, do what I say or get the hell out. He's not that way. And yeah. he's growing as a leader. And I really enjoy watching this young man grow. And But he's an exception to that rule for most people. That's one of the glaring mistakes. People look at leadership in a hierarchical view. They don't look at leadership in a how can I serve this team now and make us win mm. together. Mm-hmm. And that's how we win. We win together. It's not the me show. You know, we have Facebook. We have Instagram. We have all these, you know, all these mediums, Twitter, and God knows Snapchat. And they're all about me. They're all etern- internal things. And so it's this knee-jerk reaction to be about me when you show up. Mm. But what you really need to do, that's the first one, is see how you can serve that leadership manner and how you can help the people on your team be successful. You're a facilitator. Yeah. And success or fail on that team. I don't care if you're moving rocks or if you're making rubber dog crap in Hong Kong. I agree. The it, success it's the same or principles. fail is on you, the leader. Yeah. Just before this, I was running, listening to Jocko basically speak on that exact same subject. Now, now you're you're so you're you're pretty confident, or you you appear pretty damn confident. You've had a ton of life experience. You know, you're in a high level leadership role now. The company's doing very well. Everything is 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 really damn good. You know, just overall in life compared to where where you've been in the past. What are you still self conscious about? What still worries you to this day? What do you worry about? as an individual? Me as an individual, one of the top ones that's very selfish is that at one time, like when I first met and I first met, I could do splits and do all these things. And just health wise, I'm always looking to that guy. And that guy haunts me in a lot of ways because I could run three miles in a dead sprint on in, in, in work boots. I'm not that guy. It bothers me. And so mm-hmm. physically, sometimes that I take that into the things that I'm doing. I carry that with me. I need to try to push that back and live the best me where I'm at now. You know, I'm 45 years old. I have a lot of health issues. My body attacks itself when I work out and, and I end up getting pneumonia. So I have to be very careful how I navigate all that. That's just life. The other thing I think that bothers me is I don't, even where I'm at, and I've just started, you know, the, the officially the culture thing. I've been doing the culture thing since I got here. If they just gave me the official title, go ahead with the title. For me, I want more. I don't want it to end here. So I'm very concerned with what's tomorrow. And it's not a fearful thing. It's just a knee jerk thing for me. So I'm looking beyond Turner. I'm looking beyond that. How am I building me? How am I building me for the best? Am I the best for this role? Is there someone else better for this role within Turner? Because I truly care about not just Keaton, but the business as the organization as a whole, I'm in love with it and I want to see it move forward. So if I'm not the best for the role, I want to move somebody in there that is. Yeah. And so I'm constantly looking about, okay, who's the next me? Who do I need to reach out to? Who do I need to build? And these are the things that are constantly going through my mind. How do I move forward? How to move forward in all kinds of legacies. One, financially. How am I moving forward financially? Because I think that's part of it, not a greedy part of it. I think it is just a part of growing yourself and making yourself more valuable towards your family because it's not about the cars the motorcycles the dirt bikes it's not about the fishing boats it's about building that financial legacy that that i've never been able to do until you know now i'm just getting the place where i'm making you know halfway decent money not for profits you starve you know (laughs) but you were you were changing lives but you're starving yeah i want to touch on that whole non-profit thing though because i think people think to change lives to do good in the world to build a legacy that's very positive and not greedy you need to go into the nonprofit world, but you're making, yeah. you know, the best money you've made 
while impacting arguably the most lives you've ever impacted too right now, yeah, working right. In, in business and mining. Is that, I mean, to, to make an impact, to serve others, you don't have to be working for a nonprofit, right? Right. You don't have to. But see, that was my mentality because honestly, like I said before, I was a man on a rudderless ship. No one gave me guidance. Yeah. And so my wife and I were talking about this the other day. What little we have, we've built on our own. We didn't have help. Hmm. You know, in our wedding, our, our, our parents did the best they could by gifting us a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> we didn't have that opportunity where people gave us thousands of dollars or bought our first house. We bought our first house. The callus is on my hand, the sweat on my back. Yeah. The callus is on her hand, the sweat on her back. We've gotten to where we are without advice, without help, with putting our hands on the stove and going, oh, God, that hurt. Well, I won't do that again. <laughs> and, you know, and so for me, I went to non-for-profits. I thought that's the only way I could help the world. And now I realize I have reached literally millions of people doing what I'm doing, whereas before I had a small audience, you know. Mm-hmm. And now I've touched lives all over the place. I talk to people all over the world. Yeah, it's remarkable. And encourage them. Yeah. It's remarkable what's, what you're capable of doing. And I'm here to tell you if, you, if you're listening right now and you want to change people's lives and you want to change your life, work on you, be patient, do it one person at a time, and don't limit yourself to anything. Don't limit yourself. Don't put yourself in any kind of box because that's what I did. The only reason why I give these don't do's is because I've done them and I saw where they failed. Mm. What's the legacy you're trying to build now? And I think, I mean, this goes on what, what we're talking about. You just mentioned financial legacy and you've mentioned legacy a lot. That's a big thing with you. What is the legacy you're trying to leave behind personally? Well, so before, without even knowing early in my life, I was building a legacy of hate. Uh, I was building a legacy of poverty. Yeah. So it's not always positive. I was building a leg- yeah. I was building a legacy of ignorance. Yeah. And if my kids were born into that, oh my gosh, but they weren't. So I was lucky and blessed. Now I'm trying to build a trifold legacy, what I call a trifold legacy. I want to build a financial legacy. I want to build a physical legacy. And I want to build a legacy of love. Mm. So the physical legacy is obvious. I want to work out maybe the best me that I can. I'm not worried about six-pack abs. I'm not worried about being able to run three miles of dead sprint work boots anymore. I'm not worried about that. I just want to build the best me and I can, and I want my kids to witness that. Mm. I want my kids to see me building that financial legacy without obsessing over money. So I want that, and this is all about them. I'm only doing what I'm doing because I could go fishing and be a bum. <laughs> but instead, I want to live out such a life that my kids can watch me and see, despite the fact that when I roll out of the bed, the morning, I literally feel like I could sleep all day. My body says die. And I get up anyway. I want my kids to see me get up anyway because one day they're going to be there mm. and they're going to have to get up anyway. And so the financial legacy, I'm chasing that, but I'm not chasing it in such a way that I obsess. I'm not upset we, have, we live in a humble home. We can afford a much larger home. I do not chase those things. Mm. I'm not about the big house. I'm not about the big money. And then the legacy of love is that continual legacy for people that I deal with within the organization, within the world, and especially with my family, that they know consistently that I'm a screw up. I mess up. I fail all the time, and I'll admit it. But when you mess up, I'm going to be there for you. And part of that is selfish. One, because I know I'm going to mess up, and I'm going to need somebody to love me through it. Yeah. And no one's going to do that for me if I'm not doing it for them. And then one day they're going to have this little bundle of joy that they're holding, and it's going to change their whole world. And as they look at that child, they're going to realize, if they're honest with themselves, if they shame the devil and tell the truth, how ill-equipped they are to raise that child. <laughs> because they don't have the answers to all the questions they're going to have. Mm-hmm. 
And so now it's time to build you. And so we're teaching them now as in their teen years, it's time to build you now. No one was telling me that. I was in the woods every day when I was a kid, literally. Every day I got a chance. If, if it rained, sleet, or shine, I was out in the woods spending mm-hmm. time. I've seen mountain lions in Indiana. I'm one of the few people that I actually can honestly say I've seen a mountain lion twice in Indiana. <laughs> I spent times out in the woods, and that's all that I did. I didn't grow me. I didn't know that was such a thing. How are you raising your kids to grow themselves? What are the things you're doing to instill that? And how are you raising them overall? I mean, what do you, what do you want them to know? And because they, you, you had this struggle growing up, right? And, and obviously you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't wish it upon anyone else, but it is why you are where you are and who you are. And then, you know, you get to a place where, you know, I saw this growing up. I grew up in a pretty affluent area where all the parents, they struggled, they struggled, they struggled, they they just ground, you know, grinded it out and made a bunch of money, but now their kids don't have that struggle. How are you still making sure that they appreciate everything without having to fight tooth and nail to get what, what you have? That's a really big question, and, and I could spend a whole podcast just talking about that. <laughs> yeah, well, for us, yeah, yeah. We're, we're not rich. We make decent money. My wife is, does not work full-time, so she does cut hair, and she's an amazing job. And if you're within the Bloomington Monroe County area, she would be glad to do that for hey, you. There you and go. She's an absolute savage. Yep. Um, I guarantee your hair sucks, and when you leave, uh, it won't anymore. Uh, you but, know, um, unfortunately for her, this is not the audience since uh, no, I know. Most, I know, right. <laughs> I don't I know, know if any right. women listen to this podcast. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? You never know. But yeah. I think the biggest thing is we make our kids work for their stuff. You know what I mean? We don't give. I remember my dad, bless his heart, he's like, Mike, if I could give you anything at all, I I would give you the whole world if I could afford it. And I remember him saying that, him feeling a lot of guilt of where financially he fell short. My dad, I'm telling you, he gave his whole body. He gave everything to work hard for us growing up, but we weren't rich. And I'm glad of that now because I see how I had to work for things and now I want my kids to work for things. We don't give them nothing. Also, we graze them up with respect. Look, you got to respect your mom, you got to respect your dad. But at the same time, we have to earn that respect as mom and dad. We can't just demand it just because. Yeah. And we don't punish them for things that they didn't even know was wrong. Uh. You know what I mean? We respect our kids. And I actually ask, guess what, guys? I ask my kids their opinion on stuff. Hey, what do you think about this post? What do you think about this direction of life? Before we went to turn, it was a family meeting of what do we feel like this is because I mutually respect the opinions of my children. They're not just these dopey little things that are just annoying me. They're a part of me that they didn't ask to be brought in this world. I have had a hand in bringing them in this world, and now it's up to me to rear them, fledge them, and respect them. Mm. And so that kind of relationship is powerful. My daughter, my oldest daughter, looked me at it, and she's like, Papa, man, it just, I had to keep it together. She's like, I want you to know that you are really my best friend. Hmm. And this is the life goal. This is what I wanted. I think that's what any parent who wants kids around wants. But for her to tell me that was powerful to me. And at the same time, I got to, I, I had to go, thank you, God, <laughs> because this is the relationship that I want. This is what I'm striving for. So that was just such a big question. And, and I kind of generically answered it. But those are the things, just respecting your kids. Say, hey, look, if you want this, you got to earn it. But at the same time, not stepping back and going, okay, well, here's an idea of how you can earn it. And I'm here with you and I got your back. Win, lose, fail, I got your back. That's fascinating. And I haven't heard it phrased like that before, how 
you know, parents do think they just deserve the respect based on nothing just because they're the parent in that, you know, they're in their position and the kids in theirs. So they, they've, they just by default deserve the respect, but you're right. So don't leaders and business owners. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. With, with a parent, with a leader, with a business owner, they just, yeah, where they're at, they think they've, they deserve this respect. But, but the thing is you just have to go out and earn it still, even no matter what position you're in. And then it's perishable too. So I think it's, at least from a, from a leader's perspective, it's something you have to work on every single day of the week or else it starts to yeah. go away. Yeah. You know, mm. I've been to funerals, Aaron, where I had to look in the casket to see if the right person was being talked about. Mm. They would talk about how great this person was and how wonderful and genuine they are. And I'm thinking, dude, I, that guy was an a-hole. Yeah. He was mean to people. He was awful. Yeah. And then I, I've done funerals where people would just weep. I, I did a funeral one time for a biker. By anybody would look at this guy and dismiss him as biker trash, covered in tattoos, great big old dude. They called him Vegas, and I loved him. When I did his funeral, coincidentally, I also did his son's wedding. But when I did his funeral, all these gangs and all these people showed up, and people were genuinely weeping over this man. Mm. And I remember talking to one of the gang enforcers. This guy's jacked, <laughs> and it's just a fighting machine. And I was like, brother, I know you're crying and you're hurting. And I love Vegas too. How did he touch your life? And he looked at me and said, man, he respected me. Mm. He loved me and he was there for me. And business leaders, team leaders, I'm telling you what, team captains, if you don't do that, you're never going to win on a big scale. You're never going to build that legacy a little far surpass your legend because you never loved anybody. But you, you look at, see it on the NBA, it's huge in that. How many people, and you can name all kinds of names, that guys were team captains and they sucked because they were showboats and they were all about them. They were about their own stats. But then you've got guys who were just all about lifting up the team and being a savage on the team and equally getting guys things and helping them get to the basket too. Dude, those guys, fame, money, it all rolls into them because their team is successful. Yeah, That equates to your organization your business your family your basketball team your baseball team your little league team soccer for your kids what wins the end of the day honest to god and i've seen it time and time again is love and respect and honor and integrity these are the things that win continually these are the things that win wars these are things that win the love of the girl you want (laughs) these are the things that make you successful The template hasn't changed time and time again. This is how to raise your kids time and time again. Yeah, it applies everywhere. How to to train a dog. I mean, instead of beating the damn thing, (laughs) positive reinforcement. (laughs) Dude, I had a pit bull when my my wife and I were first married. And I was raised with shepherds and, and huskies. And my dad was very scary with those dogs. And so I was scary with this pit bull. And guess what? That pit bull was scary. Yeah. And there was a point when that pivot, his name was Eddie. <laughs> Eddie looked at me one day and was like, bring it. Come on. <laughs> you know, he wasn't afraid of me. I knew I was raising him in fear. You got better fear and respect me. And I realized right then and there it didn't work. Uh, it does not work. Man. You mentioned that's, that's a whole nother podcast. I mean, we could, we could have, oh, yeah. we could, we could go on for, a lot of hours here on a lot of different. You and tangents. I can always do. <laughs> yeah, and I mean we've we've had plenty of long conversations in the past that we'll mm-hmm. just you get on the phone, and shoot the shit. But 
man, I, I, we, we covered a lot of ground here. So I, I, we might, we're, we're at about, we're way over an hour now. Oh, are we? Yeah. So we're going to have to, it went fast. It went fast. Yeah. We're, we're going to have to wrap it up here, but we might have to have a, uh, another podcast here. You know, once you get more into this culture role, I'd love to, but talk we did we you know the podcast is titled dirt talk but we didn't really talk much dirt here we touched on mining a few times but but we didn't even (laughs) we didn't even scratch the surface on what you actually do day to day and and what mining looks like so maybe we'll have to do another one about uh actually about dirt next time yeah i'd like that as always it is always like i don't i don't care what it is and i've told you this before it's an honor just watching you grow and do your thing and being as young as you are I, i wish when i was younger that I was put together that way. And man, I just, it's an honor to just to be asked to be on your podcast and anybody listening, man, it just reach out to me, hit me up on Instagram, you know, Michael 243, Michael Bowman 243, hit me up on Facebook, hit me up on LinkedIn. Let's talk about life. Perfect. Excellent. I'm where I am because I, I just got lucky. I got born in the right place. Yeah. 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 You know, I know a lot of people born in the right place and did all the wrong things. So. Yeah. Gotta quit saying that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'll let you get on with your evening. I appreciate all your time. Right, and I appreciate uh, you. I'm sure we'll be talking soon. All right, brother. As always, if you enjoyed that episode, please share it with somebody. It's a huge help. There's no ads, there's no real way to get this podcast out other than you sharing it. So please, please share, even if you enjoyed one minute of it with someone that that you think would also enjoy it. And I appreciate you listening. So we'll see you next time.